0: in the final episode of this season fred chats with dr john parker who shares how blues music informed his research interest in death and dying
1: so sitting here with john parker of the history department how are you doing john
2: very good fred thanks for having me
1: thanks for coming back to Soas radio bumped into you in the hallway and uh, you told me you'd already done a similar
2: show many years ago you reminded me it was i think eight or so years ago so i had to to really think back on what uh, selections I made then. So I couldn't quite nail all of them, but I hope I've got five different ones for today. Excellent. And you've been at SOAS a long time. You did your undergraduate here? That's correct. I first came as an undergraduate back in the late 80s, and I did history here, and then I went straight on to do a PhD, and then I taught elsewhere for a few years, and I've been back here teaching African history for 20 years now, since 1998. So yeah, they virtually found me on the (laughs) the basket on the steps, kind of. Thing, yeah. And
1: what was it like back then?
2: Well, it was a lot smaller. I haven't got the figures off the top of my head, but I think that there was probably about a quarter of the amount of students. So it was more intimate. It was all just in this building. The classes were smaller. You sort of knew a lot more people. But in other ways, you know, things haven't changed so much. I mean, the, the feel is still a very special sort of SOAS feel and that I think that's continued.
1: So all these seven inch records you see here were actually salvaged uh, by one of our volunteers here is from the old jukebox do you remember seeing a jukebox in the jcr i don't remember seeing it but it might have been there possibly before my time did you have any good musical experiences in the
2: jcr and were there live bands back then i don't know i actually didn't used to spend a lot of time in the jcr to tell you the truth i've always lived in london so i used to sort of come and do my classes do library stuff and go home and most of my music musical life was outside of sas
1: so what have you chosen uh, as your first track would you like to tell us a little bit about it
2: yeah well you asked me to think think about music that has sort of shaped my teaching and my time at SOAS and that immediately appeal to me because I'm actually for the last sort of four or five years I've been researching and writing a book on the history of death and the dead in West Africa focused on where I do my own research which is in Ghana and one of the original inspirations for this work was not from Africa at all but from the musical culture of the southern United States going back to the early sort of recordings and blues and folk music in the 1920s and 30s and about sort of 20 years ago I started discovering this music like a lot of people when I acquired a copy of the very famous anthology of American folk music that was put together in the early 50s by this very eccentric guy named Harry Smith who was one of these early record collectors who had collections of thousands of these old 78 records dating mainly back to the sort of late 20s and early 30s and I was really struck by listening to this anthology and to other re-releases of this stuff how much of this music was about death and about how ordinary people thought about death and dying and there were sort of various genres of music. Some of it was religious, some of it was secular, including blues and sort of Appalachian murder ballads and stuff like that. And so it got me thinking about the way ordinary people thought about death and dying. And I thought, you know, I've come across some interesting material on this in my African research. It got me started on this project on death and dying. So what I've chosen for the first selection is, is a piece of more or less religious music it's by a very famous sort of singing evangelist a blues man named Blind Willie Johnson who was from East Texas and he was one of the great sort of early blues evangelists and so this particular song is was one which sort of travelled under different names in the South his version is called Jesus Make Up My Dying Bed it also went by the name of In My Time of Dying and that's actually the title I've chosen for this uh, book that I'm just putting the uh, the final touches to now, so let's have a listen to this one by Blind Willie Johnson. Let's give it a listen.
0: Set <laughs> me been a minute apart but the receiver in my hand and religion in my heart I can ring him up easy ah, oh well bang him up easy don't make him up Hangin' there in me Oh, wow Hangin' down in me drink. Don't make a mind And got him up
1: Blind Willie Johnson with Jesus Make Up My Dying Bed.
2: On the Harry Smith's Anthology of American Folk Music, there's another famous track by Blind Willie Johnson called John the Revelator, about John who wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelations. So this was another one of his great evangelistic guitar pieces. So having heard that, I sort of tracked down other stuff by him and all of his stuff's been re-released on other CDs. I use this to teach in a number of ways. One, one of the courses I teach is called Society and Culture in 20th Century Africa and we have a section of the course on the performing and the visual arts in Africa and there's one on music and what I try to do each is sort of have 10 or so pieces of music and I have a little game with myself. I try to have 10 different pieces every year and the idea is to look at old music sort of from the 78 era in Africa but also from the African diaspora. So I play a lot of music from South America, the Caribbean Caribbean and North America too. The idea being that, that this is as much part of African or black Atlantic culture, if you like, as as music that was recorded on the continent. I often, despite wanting to have different stuff, kick off the session with this song because it is so incredibly powerful.
1: And so how did that linkage start happening uh, for yourself when you were studying uh, for your PhD? Or...
2: My PhD was a history of Accra, the capital city of Ghana, and that had some resonance here because... Because I, uh, so I started off as an urban historian and I was interested in the way particular cities shape cultures and culture-shaped cities, particularly, of course, musical cultures. So I was interested in the sort of great African cities of the Atlantic world, both in West Africa itself and also in the Americas, New York, Havana, Rio de Janeiro, uh, New Orleans, and all of these urban places where different cultures came together and created new hybrid forms of music in combinations of African musical forms and European musical forms and of course these, these new genres of music bounced back and forth across the Atlantic between Africa, Europe and the Americas and so that was sort of one area of interest and then when I went on and did other research that was more focused on the, the realm of religion and religious practice and belief and myth, I started to, to come across ideas about dying and the dead and the, the relationship between the living and uh, and the dead and ancestors, and so this sort of the two came together in, in, in quite sort of interesting ways. Uh, so what are we gonna hear next? <laughs> well, we had to have some jazz, because that jazz is more or less my favourite genre of music, and it's the one I probably listen to the most and see the most in London. I sort of hummed and hard of what to what to play. Last time I did this show, I did I, I had Charles Mingus Haitian Fight Song, but this time I've gone for Sun Ra. And what What's interesting about Sun Ra is that he engaged with the idea of Africa in this really extraordinary way. He's often associated with this notion of Afrofuturism, which was the sort of ideas of outer space and space travel and a and uh, kind of broader cosmos. But at the same time, he was also very rooted and fashioned by ideas of ancient Africa, particularly ancient Egypt. And so these sort of ways of imagining the African past and thinking about the African past really I found extremely interesting and so I've chosen a lot of Sunrise stuff as very long extended jam type sessions but I've chosen a very short track called Watusa from 1958 which I think will fit into the show quite well so let's have a listen to that one.
1: Science Orchestra with Watusa from the Nubians of Plutonia. We were talking about space earlier. Was it one of Blind Willie Johnson's tracks was uh, sent up into space?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's a good connection with Sun Ra. I I think it happened back in the 80s and there was one of these Voyager spacecrafts or something that they just sort of sent out into the cosmos and they put on it a selection of music. I don't know what was on there, maybe Frank Sinatra or Mozart or something, just in case, like years from now kind of thing, it came across across some other life beings that could uh, open it up and sort of hear what kind of music was listened to on Earth. And one of the tracks was another one by Blind Willie Johnson called Dark as the Night and Cold as the Ground, another grave or death-related uh, piece. So, yeah, so that sort of fits in with Sun Ra's idea of the cosmos in an interesting way, doesn't
1: it? Does any of your research deal with space and the cosmos uh, in the funeral rites? Or what do you look at specifically in your forthcoming book?
2: yeah it, I do. Um, that sort of ideas of being sort of on, I guess if you like, ontological ideas and ideas of cosmological ideas certainly come into it. and I guess key there is this is this crucial relationship between the living and the dead. I mean there's a simple question what happens to the dead where do they go are they just completely obliterated from human existence obviously not uh they in many african cosmologies the dead retain an extremely important ongoing relationship with the living and it's that relationship that i I think i'm quite interested in exploring
1: so that interest started uh with blues music how did you kind of uh move on with your research in that field correct me if i'm wrong but uh are drumming ceremonies or central to funeral rites yeah yeah
2: a- absolutely I, th- that's one thing that interests me and I have a chapter in the book in which I write about the sort of sensory experience of funerals and I focus on sound and and the visual experience so the colors of funerals the different sort of symbolic colors of death in Ghana and in other African cultures people dress in very particular ways for funerals and those that the cloth the dress has very and specific meanings. It, it can often change over the course of these very protracted funeral rites. And also the sonic barrage of funerals is important. Funerals in, in Ghana are often extremely noisy and the noise is important because the noise is a, a medium with which people communicating with both the proximate deceased but also existing ancestors, sort of opening up a sort of ritual space by which movement between the, the living and the dead can happen. So, yeah, sound and music is is very important.
1: Has it affected your outlook on uh, death?
2: Yes. I mean, I think about it a lot. I mean, I live with my ghosts. I mean, historians deal in ghosts. We deal with the past, but... My people are dead when I start with them. So, yes, I mean, it, it's certainly given me pause for thought. A lot of people sort of think it's a rather morbid and odd thing to research. But I've found it in a way curiously life-enhancing and sometimes uplifting. It, it gets me down occasionally. But, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting uh, process.
1: Any, this is a morbid question, but has it affected any of your thoughts uh, about uh, your funeral?
2: Um, No, not really. Do you- do you have a track list,
3: which is <laughs> yes. similar well, I actually, to what you're, I, I you're have, playing today? Um,
2: I have lost some friends over the years, and I've been to funerals where um, people have actually planned for them and had very specific musical segments where they've wanted certain pieces of music. Uh, It's crossed my mind, but uh, hopefully I've got a way to go till I make that final playlist, yeah. We'll save that for later. What are we going to hear next? Okay, now I want to go to Brazil. You asked me before what was different about SOAS back in the day, and one thing was that when the University of London existed as a more of a proper federal system it was much easier as a student to go between colleges and do different courses and now that's extremely hard to do. I don't know if you had that experience yourself. When I came to SOAS in the late 1980s I'd spend about 10 years or so living in different parts of the world and traveling around a lot which is pretty typical because I'm from New Zealand. I'd spent a lot of time in Africa and I became very interested in its history but I'd also spent a long time in Latin America and I really wanted to to do Latin American history and African history so I was looking for somewhere where I could combine that and then you could do that here at SOAS because you could simply go next door to UCL and do Latin American history there and just before I'd come to SOAS I'd been in Brazil for a long time and it's a place I grew really to love and I actually even thought about continuing on to do a PhD on Brazil I decided to work on West Africa ultimately but I always retained a great love for brazilian history brazilian culture i was lucky enough to study brazilian history with a great historian of brazil leslie bethel who used to teach at, at ucl and it also fits into my interest in the great african cities of the black atlantic and i'm thinking here of rio de janeiro now there's a lot of different amazing genres of brazilian music but i've chosen bossa nova i listen to a lot of and go and see a lot of very strange kind of underground music but this is essentially pop music and so i also also like a lot of genres of very sort of straight-up pop music. But Bossa Nova is a bit more than that too. It's a very sophisticated, very subtle music which grew out of Samba in the late 50s and early 60s. For me, it really sums up the feeling of Rio de Janeiro, which I think is one of the world's most interesting and clearly most visually stunning cities. So I've chosen a real Bossa Nova classic, Mush Nada. It's been done by loads of different Famous Brazilian actors, it was singers. It was originally written by Jorge Ben in the early '60s, but I've chosen the version by uh, the Tamba Trio from 1963. Let's give it a listen. <laughs> Canada. have you been back to Brazil recently? Uh, No, not recently, although I had an awful tragedy last year when a um, PhD student of mine uh, died suddenly, and she was from Brazil, from Rio. In fact, I kind of dedicate that one to her. she was from the the so-called zona sul, the southern zone of Rio de Janeiro, Ipanema, just on the beach, and so she she I, I really sort of have been thinking a lot about her and her death and um and, and that kind of and Brazilian history and and particularly she was of the left, uh, she was doing a PhD on workers' struggles, not in Brazil but in 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 Luanda in Angola, and um particularly with the current political uh, change in Brazil with this extremely right-wing um, regime of Jair uh, Bolsonaro that's just come to power. Um, I, I may go back to Brazil because uh, when she died, I had quite a lot to do with her family. And um, so a, a rather sad encounter with the city, but um, yeah, I may be heading back soon.
1: Sorry to hear. How many PhD students um, do you usually supervise uh, at a time? Can it be several?
2: Yeah, I usually, it depends, it varies from academic to academic. I usually have sort of three, four, five, six typically at any one go. I mean, I enjoy supervising research students and I'm pretty flexible to it. With it, I'll, I'll pretty much supervised anything on the african continent from pharaonic egypt to the present day kind of thing north south east and west cuz i learn a lot from it too so i've done about 20 people over the years and yeah it's been a, it's been one of the highlights of my time in science has been engaging with people doing their their research and
1: uh what other aspects or what can we expect from the book you're putting out? Any interesting stories to share
3: while yeah, researching
2: it? Well, yes, it um, it, it kind of is a book of stories. I've sort of tried to structure the book in a rather different way to most academic books. I don't know about you, but I often find I get halfway through an academic book and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> when's this thing going to end? I mean, they invariably sort of slump in the middle. So I, tr- I wanted to write something that was more kind of readable. So I've gone for a structure worth about 20 short chapters of just about a dozen or 15 pages each. And each one is looking at a particular theme about the history of death and dying over about a 400 year period. So I go back to the 17th century and take it through to the, the mid 20th century. And I've tried to write it around individual stories, maybe not life stories, but death stories. I've tried to look for sources that have touched on an individual experience, hence the title that I've taken from the Old blues refrain in my time of dying so i'm just putting the finishing edits to it now so i'll leave it to my betters to decide how if i've succeeded or not well we'll see how it turns out look forward to giving it a read what are we going to hear next i was thinking about what sort of genres of music to go for we've had blues from with blind willie johnson we've had jazz we've had Nova from brazil leading on from the anthology of american folk music life-changing moment i became very interested in a whole range of different musics from all over the world. From the 1920s and 1930s, I was particularly fascinated by this process during which, at that time, sound recordists went out from these newly formed record companies and recorded what we could generally call folk music all over the world from the Pacific Islands to the American South all over the Middle East Africa the Mediterranean area any one of those genres of music throws up some really extraordinary gems but I've gone for one genre which has a particular resonance for me which is the music of Louisiana and particularly New Orleans Uh, New Orleans is another one of these great cities like Rio a great African city a great melting pot of cultures that's thrown up incredible musical genres but I've gone slightly outside of the city to the Cajun bayous. My interest here is Cajun music. The Cajuns were originally French settlers in Canada who were expelled by the British in the 1750s and they were relocated way thousands of miles away from their homes in the maritime provinces of Canada down to the swamps of Louisiana. And there they uh, intermingled with uh, African American peoples and created this incredible Cajun music, which is basically an accordion, guitar and uh, violin and percussion combination, which you see in a variety of forms all over the Americas and in Europe. To. And so I've chosen a track from one of the real pioneers of Cajun music, Cleoma Bro. She married a guy named Joe Falcon. She was a guitarist. He was an accordionist. And they were the first Cajun performers to record at some of these mobile recording um, studios in the 1920s. And this is kind of interesting because it's got a kind of bluesy feel. It's not your typical sort of Cajun track. So I also was conscious of the fact that I wanted some women singing and this is a song that shows that girls can sing the blues too, even white girls.
1: I'm a bro with blues negris, um, off of
2: which compilation? I found this one on a CD put together by the the famous comics artist Robert Crumb. I think it's called Hot Women, but uh, it's not a title I would necessarily approve of. But the idea is it's women singers from the hot climes of the world. So. Um, there you have it. How does uh,
1: music inform your writing when you're researching something? Do you ever use uh, recorded music as sources?
2: I haven't in the past but like I was saying before about the way Ghanaian funerals work and the importance of the sort of sonic element in the ritual of them, there's a number of field recordings of Ghanaian funerary music if you like, which I'm thinking about sort of tapping into as I put the final touches on the book. So... Yeah, let's let's see how I go on that one.
1: So music seems, uh, or your relationship to music seems quite uh, interlaced with your work as an academic. Is there anything you would say maybe to young historians uh, with an interest in music of how they can combine the two?
2: I mean, in my own case, as I've explained, I just have found music and indeed other forms of art really very inspirational in terms of thinking about the past as perhaps of all forms of artistic representation Music is the most profoundly moving, and it puts us in contact with the past. I think in a variety of interesting ways, both our own past and the past of others. So I think I would say that you know, for thinking about doing history, whether you are doing it as an undergraduate or beyond, is that you know, there's a whole lots of different sorts of ways of artistic representation that can just sort of trigger certain ways of thinking about life, thinking about your own engagement with the world and the past. So you know, just I I think to be open to those moments and to act on them uh, could be really useful. Definitely. What are we going to hear next as your final track? Okay, my final track is opera. And, but it's a very particular opera It's by Philip Glass Who's one of the great minimalist composers So-called minimalist composers Because I don't think they compose themselves Particularly like that term There was three great pioneers of minimalism From the 1960s Terry Riley, Steve Reich And Philip Glass And I've chosen Akhnartan And one reason I chose this Is that Akhnartan is currently playing uh, At the Coliseum At the English National Opera And I went to see it on Friday night just a couple of nights ago and it was a really extraordinary piece of musical theatre profoundly moving and it links into my interest in the idea of Africa Akhenaten of course was the rogue monotheistic pharaoh who broke with one and a half thousand years of pharaonic tradition in the 14th century BCE and it seems attempted to create his own monotheistic religion based on the worship of the sun the Aten and he and his new religion came to a sticky end but he is an interesting historical figure perhaps one could say that he was the first truly complex historical figure in in world history before him kings and pharaohs and others were simply sort of cardboard cutouts they were deified they were made to look like gods and they were made to act like gods but Akhenaten was different for one thing he was an extremely physically odd almost androgynous character, almost a sort of trans character. And this comes across extremely powerfully in Glass's opera, which is structured quite unusually because for the first 40 minutes of the opera Akhenaten is on the stage for much of the time but does not sing. And when he finally does sing, it's a really quite extraordinary moment because the singer that sings the role is a counter-tenor, that is to say, a singer that sings at the same level as a contralto, as a female voice. And so when Ignatian finally sings it's really a very profound moment and very moving in the performance I saw on Friday which was sung by an American uh, countertenor named Anthony Ross Costanza so again Egypt is interesting, ideas of Africa are interesting and it's the point where I begin my first year course on the introduction to African history, we begin with pharaonic Egypt as being very much a part of African history So I thought this would also bring home an interesting point I wanted to make which was that London is one of the world's great cities talking about the sort of feel of cities for seeing live music and there's all sorts of incredible music on any given night and all the genres we've been thinking about happening in London, a lot of it is very accessible and affordable. And even to go to the opera is not beyond the reach of students. So I thought this selection from McNaughton would be a good place to end. This is from the third scene of the first act, that moment when the pharaoh begins to sing after he's been crowned king of Egypt. Let's give it a listen.
1: Philip Glass with the third scene from the first act of Akhenaten. Thanks so much uh, for coming by and sharing some music with us, John.
2: It's been great fun. Thanks a lot, Fred.
0: Thank you for listening to our final episode of Professor Playlist Season 1. If you'd like to get involved or know somebody who does, you can contact us at info at